We are talking once again with Jav Parrish and Maria Tomchik, local writers and activists, here to give us a wrap-up of this past week's news. Good morning. Good morning. Good afternoon. Starting out with uh, City Council news this week uh, and uh, the Urban Canopy. Yeah. Um, the, the Seattle City Council has been trying for several years to uh, revise its tree uh, ordinances, which, uh, believe it or not, the city has an extensive uh, set of tree ordinances for you know how much developers have to have to keep and 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 uh, what size trees have to be preserved and et cetera et cetera. Um, over the past twenty years or so, as uh, Seattle's become denser and denser, you've had this this uh, uh, weird disconnect between uh, density for the sake of trying to. Uh, you know, uh, uh, ameliorate climate change. And so, you know, the urbanist crowd has been saying needs to be denser, needs to be denser. That has resulted in a lot of trees being cut down, which of course, uh, is harmful in terms of trying to ameliorate climate change. Uh, so the city was trying to update that and, uh, tighten its regulations for uh, the size trees that need to be preserved, how many trees need to be replanted, uh, when trees are, 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 uh, are removed for development, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, it, it really took a ton of negotiation to get that done, uh, for a number of years, but, uh, it finally got done. So that, uh, kudos to city council for, you know, trying to, uh, do the right thing and, and it's not perfect, but it will probably uh, be tweaked in uh, in addition over the next few months. Yeah, there's an interesting um, article about this on Erica Barnett's blog, uh, Publicola. And uh, she was talking about how Alex Peterson had tried to introduce uh, a bunch of amendments that were voted down by the other city council members. Uh, and at the very end, he tried to scrap the entire bill and replace it uh, with his own version that would have made it much, much harder to build anything other than single family housing in a lot of the areas of the of the city. So I think it's kind of telling that the other city council members saw through that and they were able to craft a bill that doesn't uh, necessarily make it easier for developers to come in and build multifamily housing, but it does preserve uh, more of the tree canopy. I think the next stop for the city council is to look at the much more extensive urban forest that's that's on public lands in the city of Seattle. That includes yeah. street trees and trees in in Seattle parks as well. Yeah, and medians and all the rest of that. Mm-hmm. That's that's more than half of the canopy in Seattle. Yeah, and come up with some kind of a policy there to ensure the uh, maintenance of that tree canopy as well, because I think that's an even more important part of the piece. Yeah, in terms of Alex Peterson's amendments, I, I think it wasn't difficult for the the other city council members to see through it. All they had to do was consider the source, you know. <laughs> All right. Well, moving on, uh, sticking with uh, city council-related news, the Public Safety and Human Services Committee met this week. 
Uh, yes, they met on Tuesday with only three staff present, uh, Lisa Herbold, who's the chair, Sarah Nelson, and Alex Peterson. Teresa Mosqueda then uh, joined the, the meeting remotely, uh, eventually. Now, the committee heard three presentations. There are two of them that I found very interesting. One of them was a presentation uh, on overdose trends and community-based overdose prevention program uh, that's being run by the city currently. The presenters included staff from the Seattle King County Public Health and three and two other uh, mem- or no, three other members of groups working as part of that team to reduce drug overdose deaths in the city and county, including folks from including uh, one person each from the People's Harm Reduction Alliance, Evergreen Treatment Services and the Hepatitis Education Project. So first off, the statistics overall, there were about a thousand overdose deaths in King County last year. And the vast bulk of them were from fentanyl, but also there was a big increase in methamphetamine use. Um, and some of that was combined fentanyl meth or combined fentanyl cocaine use. Most of the deaths, about 60%, are happening inside the city of Seattle versus uh, the rest of the county, other areas of the county. And that includes other suburban cities like Renton, um, Kent, Auburn, etc. Now, demographically, Native Americans have the highest rate of overdose deaths, almost nine times higher than whites. For black individuals, the rate is three times higher for whites. And there's also a higher rate for folks in the Latino Latinx uh, community as well. And uh, and folks who are mixed ethnicities. Now, the presentation emphasized that Harm reduction is on a range of services that the city and county provide to folks who are drug users and who are most at risk. That includes different types of treatments and services, not just abstinence-based drug treatment, which Sarah Nelson is pushing really hard for the city to concentrate on. So, for example, program members have worked to provide 20,000 harm reduction kits to users throughout throughout the county. Wait, wait, wait. So Sarah Nelson is pushing just say no? Yeah. Seriously? Yeah, abstinence treatment has been her big thing for since day one on the council. She's she's a tool. Well, what's interesting is that she and her husband make their money mostly from uh, pushing alcohol, right? Yes, yes, she does. And she does talk about her own struggles with, with, uh, with, uh, 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 with addiction, so I find it kind of interesting that she lacks com- completely seems to complete, seems to completely lack empathy when it comes to this situation. Well, it's, it's not just empathy. I mean, there's 40 years of public health data that shows that abstinence programs don't work. Well, they for don't. most people, they for may people. work for some people. So uh, that and that was something that the folks sitting at the table on Tuesday were were very careful to talk about. So, for example, the program members said that they've provided 20,000 harm reduction kits to users. They they are involved in programs that provide methadone to uh, folks who have used fentanyl and uh, and heroin. They've distributed naloxone to treat overdoses. Uh, they help with wound care and other health care issues, uh, and they worked with other nonprofits to locate housing and other services for homeless drug users. Without harm reduction, many, many more people would be dying in Seattle and King County. 
Now, they pointed out that one shortfall in the city's current approach uh, is the lack of any facility where homeless drug users can use in a safe environment that doesn't put them at risk of crime or abuse or, or injury from other people. That would be known, also known as a safe consumption site. Uh, now, the majority of drug users who live on the street are reporting that they either started their drug use after they became homeless or their use increased after they lost their housing. And that should come as no surprise to anyone. So yeah, the harm, it, yeah. You know, the, it, it, it's, it's called self-medicating because living on the street is brutally difficult. It is stressful. And, and yeah, it's, it's incredibly stressful and painful, yes. Yeah. So the harm reduction approach has to focus of necessity on the overall well-being of the drug users, not just only on their drug use, which is what abstinence-only treatment as your primary and, and sole focus would do. Now, at the same time, the program members, as they're, as they're treating these folks for other things, it helps them to build trust with drug users. And once that trust is in place, it then allows them to start talking about and offering treatment programs to users who are ready to re to reduce their drug use. They talked a little bit about how it's a multi-stage process and that the folks they're dealing with tend to be the drug users who are uh, at first on first contact, the least willing to do anything about their drug use. Uh, and so that they spend a lot of time trying to align those folks' values with their reality. So for the most part, drug users don't feel that, that, that using drugs or doing the other things that they have to do in order to get the money to buy more drugs aligns with their, with their personal values. And so the harm reduction alliance, they're out there trying to get those folks to understand, hey, the things you have to do day to day to get food, to find a safe place to sleep, to get the money to buy your drugs, it doesn't align with your personal value system. Uh, what can we do to help you get that all back in sync and then start to and then maybe start to address this issue? Yeah, and it's, it's slow, painstaking work, which, mm -hmm. you know. Just say no is quick and simple. That's the appeal of it. Yeah. So then Sarah Nelson asked a question about what public health is doing to, quote, move beyond the harm reduction phase, end quote. And if public health is allocating any funding for abstinence-based treatment, the answer, of course, was that hundreds of millions of dollars are already being spent on treatment programs, including abstinence-based treatment, methadone clinics, buprenorphine, and other types of treatment. What often goes begging for funds are the harm reduction strategies that this group were, were talking about and that that was really why Lisa Herbold had invited them to the table so that they could educate the public and educate the city council members on what it is that they're actually doing and the effects that it's having. These uh, harm reduction strategies really are meant to treat the whole person, to get them housed, fed, and stabilized so that they can begin to work on their drug use issues. Now, it's also an understanding, of course, that there are always going to be some people who don't want to quit do doing drugs. That's just the reality. Okay. And given that, how do you minimize the harms that those folks undergo and the harms that they may cause to the people around them? or even to society in general, if they're out there living on the street, maybe they're involved in crime in order to pay for their drug habit. Maybe uh, they pose a, a serious strain on the healthcare system. The idea is that there must be some way to mitigate that. 
and harm reduction is meant to be uh, the way to treat that. So that was, I thought, a very, very interesting presentation that I don't think Sarah Nelson fully absorbed or was particularly paying much attention to, although she should have been. Now, the other presentation that I found of interest in the Public Safety and Human Services Committee was on the Seattle Police Department quarterly staffing performance metrics and finances report. Angela Sosi, the budget and finance director of SPD, was there, and uh, Council Central staffer Greg Doss did the actual presentation. Um, this is the quarterly report that the city council mandates that from the SPD. Uh, the mayor's office, unfortunately, didn't have a representative there because the mayor's office is spearheading the recruiting the new, the brand new recruiting process. So it would have been good to have someone from the mayor's office there, but apparently they're going to be doing a separate presentation at a future committee meeting on how that recruitment program is going. So first off, this is the statistics. Uh, separations from the SPD are starting to slow down and come in closer to the estimates of, of who's, of how many people are leaving. On the hiring end, though, the hiring has been slower than estimated, and I would say that there's no surprise there. That's been true over the last few years. The first quarter, there were 26 new hires versus an estimated 31 that the SPD had said they could do. Now, the SPD is estimating that they'll have a shortfall of about 33 fully trained officers this year versus their original projections. Although this seems like a lot, it's actually closer to the estimate than it's been over the last three years, uh, where it's been 100 or more officers. That means the SPD is expecting to have about $3 million in salary savings this year versus the much, much higher numbers it's had in previous years. Alex Peterson asked, the committee, asked if the committee could see the exit interviews from the 28 officers who've left the department in the first quarter in order to understand why they're leaving. Uh, then Angela Sosi responded that 20 of those are retirements, 12 of whom were veteran officers with over 30 years of service. Seven were officers who seven were actually officers mid-career who were leaving and one was a suspension. Peterson was concerned about early retirements and perhaps being caused by dissatisfaction with the department. Uh, Herbold pointed out that all departments around the country are seeing this problem of more officers retiring than can be hired. And I would point out that, yes, this is an issue not just for police departments. It's an issue for many industries, too, as the baby boomer bulge starts to reach retirement age and, and retires. It's been a lot harder for many, many industries to find f folks to replace them. Now, in terms of finances, overtime spending is up again this quarter at $8.7 million, with 28% of the budget spent instead of under 25%, which is where it should be. More overtime is usually spent in the summer, and so this is a really bad trend to see in January through March. SPD estimates that all of the $3 million of salary savings will be needed to cover the shortfall in the overtime budget, and they may be back to the city council asking for more money later in the year. Now, overtime is up uh, in several departments, but the highest uh, the highest amount of, of gain in overtime is, in, is on the emphasis patrols. Remember, those are mostly patrolling downtown. Um, Sarah Nelson pointed out that 
80% of the overtime in patrol operations was to ensure that precincts have minimum staffing levels and that that's a bad sign. But I should point out that the overtime amount in the patrol operations division is just one small piece of, of overall overtime, and it appears to be smaller than the overtime in the following categories, events, sporting events, and emphasis patrols. And uh, spending on emphasis patrols is nearly doubled just in the first quarter of the year. Okay, and then spending on events and sporting events is up 58 percent over last year as the pandemic has eased. But I should point out, too, that those are jobs that have been identified as potentially being something that a civilian responder team could handle that don't necessarily wouldn't necessarily have to be uh, SPD officers doing that work. So other categories are up too, but uh, the one that's of most concern is separation pay, which it, which was $1.2 million in the first quarter, which means 43% of its budget has been spent just in the first three months of the year. Uh, and then uh, so Angela Sosi pointed out that the more senior the officer who's retiring, the higher their separation pay will be. So it's based on those officers who are retiring, really. So that kind of wraps wraps it up. Um, the mayor's office has been really slow to spend money on the recruitment program. They looked at the budget for the recruitment program, which has only spent about 6% of its budget, not 25% as you would expect in the first quarter of the year. It's because they're planning, they're, they're doing planning on a new revised marketing and advertising plan based on social media outreach. Uh, but and apparently they're going to have this plan uh, fully, fully completed and in place by August. But of course, <laughs> the wow. need is the need for it is right now. And <coughs> would have been nice to have someone from the mayor's office sitting in the meeting explaining why it's been taking this long to get a social media advertising strategy up and running. Yeah, or or why they didn't plan on that in the first place. Yeah, that's that's the main way that people find out about you know openings these days. Yeah, so that's uh, so that wraps up my coverage of the of of the presentations. Interesting presentations at the city council. All right, all right. Well, moving on to the state of Washington and capital gains tax. Yes, surprise, surprise. The Washington Department of Revenue said this week they've collected much more in capital gains taxes this spring than they expected. They collected approximately $849 million. That's more than three times higher than they originally estimated. The original estimate was around $248 million. Uh, that total could change as more 2022 returns are filed. Now, the Washington capital gains tax returns had to be either filed by April 15th and the payment made, or they had to be extended with the tax paid. You can't extend and not pay your tax, or you can, but then you would have to pay a big a big uh, fee on top of that for, for paying late. Now, uh, so as actual returns are filed, there may be some taxpayers who, oops, didn't know that they needed, there may be some wealthy, more wealthy taxpayers that, oops, didn't know that they needed to make that payment and, and file that Washington capital gains tax return. So there could be even more revenue or there could be a lot of folks who originally 
overestimated how much they would need to pay, and there could be some refunds that cut into that amount. Interestingly, over 3,000 people filed returns or extensions, which is, again, about triple what what the Washington Department of Revenue expected. And it really points out that Washington has become a tax haven for some seriously wealthy, a lot of seriously wealthy people. Yes, uh, because there's no state income tax. That's right. That's and because exactly we're, right. we're, we're close to California, which has a very high state personal income tax. Yeah. Now, the first $500 million of revenue collected each year from the tax goes to fund public education programs throughout Washington state. Anything above that then goes into the school construction and repairs fund. So uh, it looks like some rural schools in particular are going to get much needed uh, either repairs or brand new school buildings. So that's good news. Yeah, especially I, I know they're all scrambling just to uh, retrofit schools, you know, to survive the coming earthquakes. So yeah, there could be there could be brand new schools that are uh, more in line with uh, with uh, building codes when it comes to earthquake safety, or perhaps also with um, you know climate related uh, accessories for dealing with heat and mm-hmm. cold. Um, air circulation uh, accessories for dealing with pandemics. You know. Water that's water that's free of lead and arsenic. Yeah, all kinds of uh, nice things that uh, we would hope our kids could have. Yeah, <laughs> everywhere throughout the state. Yeah. So that's the that's the good news this week in, in local. All right. Okay, let's move on to national and um, lots of uh, talk this week about uh, debt ceiling. Yeah, uh, President Biden has been in negotiations with Republicans in the House and Senate to try to reach a deal on raising the debt ceiling. Uh, this week, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen told Congress that the U.S. government will default on its obligations on June 5th if Congress doesn't vote to raise the debt ceiling uh, before then. There aren't a lot of details yet on the negotiations, but it seems that Biden is offering to keep discretionary social spending to the same level over the next two years, which will actually mean cuts to social programs like education programs, food programs, environmental programs, etc. The discretionary military budget, however, will be allowed to grow. That's a of course. Yeah, that's something the Republicans are demanding. Uh, Republicans are also trying to cut the amount of new funding that was allocated for the IRS to perform audits on uh, rich people suspected of cheating on their taxes. Um, no changes are being proposed for the non-discretionary programs in the budget, which includes Social Security and Medicare. In return, the Republicans would vote to raise the debt ceiling for the next two years. Uh, and that means, of course, in two years, another crisis. Now, it's not clear that the Republican leadership will be able to get all of their members to vote for this deal, since many Republicans are already expressing disappointment that Kevin McCarthy isn't holding out for steeper cuts. And there are some Republicans who are already talking about an exit ramp for McCarthy as Speaker of the House. Now, remember, McCarthy had to make a devil's bargain with the far right members of his party in order to become House Speaker. He granted them the and, right to all a vote at any time to ditch him as Speaker. And they're already and, threatening and to do that. Yes. It's barely been six months. Yes. And in the course of those negotiations, it was said that, you know, the first really difficult vote that McCarthy is going to face with his own caucus is going to be on the debt ceiling. And so this was, anti- 
This was anticipated, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the thing is, if this is a deal that the Biden administration can in good conscience sign off on, you should have enough Democratic votes that, that you know, in, in conjunction with some of the Republican votes, it'll pass. But, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, uh, there are procedural things that the far-right Republicans can do to delay a vote, and we're nine days away from having to, you know, reach a deal, do the language of the legislation, get it passed in the House and the Senate, and then, uh, you know, uh, uh, reconcile any differences, pass it again in the House and the Senate, and send it to the White House. So the time is very, very short. Now, uh, to their credit, and I say that somewhat sarcastically, uh, both Republicans and the Democrats are saying, oh no, we don't want to see a, we don't want to see a default. Um, some of the bomb throwers on the far right, however, are perfectly happy to see a, a default because they think that the resulting economic calamity will primarily politically benefit Republicans because Biden will be blamed for it. Um, that is an incredibly cynical strategy. Um, uh, you know, uh, being willing to risk economic hardship for literally millions, if not billions of people. Uh, for short term political gain. Yeah. It's, because uh, if, if the, if the, if it comes down to, to June 5th and there isn't a deal in place, the first people who will suffer will be the oldest social security recipients and folks who are on disability. Cause those are the folks who get some of the first payments of the month for, uh, their benefits. Uh, those benefits would be delayed. For them, and those are folks living on the edge. So it seems not just cynical, but really cruel and inhuman for the for the Republicans to be holding those folks hostage. Well, remember the the modern day Republican motto: "Cruelty is the point." Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, that's the, that's the state of the debt ceiling. Hopefully, um, we'll have that in the rearview mirror this time next week. Okay. Um Updates on the uh, America's Favorite Crime Family. Yeah. Um, Donald Trump had another really bad, very good, no good week. Uh, uh, we found out this week uh, from one of the people who worked for him at Mar-a-Lago that the um, classified documents that um, uh, the FBI conducted a raid in last uh, August in order to try and find uh, documents that the National Archives had been seeking, that the Department of Justice had been seeking, and the Trump, uh, the Trump camp had been saying, oh no, we gave all of those to you. Uh, well, they didn't, and it turns out that a day before the FBI conducted its raid at Mar-a-Lago, um, there was a concerted effort to move and hide the boxes that contained those documents, and this was overseen personally by Donald Trump. Now, that's significant not only because it shows that they were intentionally trying to hide the documents, but that uh, Trump personally was uh, was directing that effort. So um, you, know, you would think that he would be personally criminally liable for that since, uh, you know, in the past, uh, you know, executive branch employees that have failed to return classified documents or taken them home, even accidentally, have faced years in prison. Um, 
So why isn't this happened yet with with Donald Trump? Well, uh, Special Prosecutor Jack Smith from the Department of Justice is looking into that along with Trump's culpability for the January 6th, uh, uh, you know, uh, conspiracy. Uh, Stuart Rhodes, the, the founder and uh, chief honcho of the Oath Keepers, was sentenced to 18 years in prison for seditious conspiracy this week. That is by far the harshest penalty that any January 6th rioter has faced. And it comes for somebody who was instrumental in the planning of those, that day's events, but not in terms of the, uh, the, the political appointees, the government employees, the, uh, the Trump administration officials who were involved in the planning, allegedly, uh, or Donald Trump himself, who was allegedly uh, knee-deep in the planning. So, um, you know, we're, we're still waiting for uh, the, those potential indictments. indictments. We're waiting for potential indictments from Fulton County, Georgia. Uh, uh, the uh, prosecutor there signaled this week that if there is going to be an indictment, it will probably come in the month of August. So mark your calendar now. And, um, yeah, it should be an interesting summer.